Looking for a fun way to win up to 25 times your money this basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com slash get100 and use code get100. That's code get100 at prizepicks.com slash get100 for a first deposit matchup to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. This is the American Veteran Show. Proud to finally say these two words. Welcome home. Dedicated to those who have worn the uniform. Tremendous national asset. Dedicated to our active duty men and women. They came not as conquerors, but as liberators. Dedicated to presenting issues, topics, and interviews highlighting their commitment to our country. I want to thank the courageous men and women who've served their country in uniform. Less than 1% of the population of our country chooses to serve our country in the military. And the other 99% of us, we owe them. Online at AmericanVeteranShow.com. Here's Stephen Tubbs. Welcome to this week's edition of the American Veteran Show. As always, thank you so much for making us a part of your Sunday afternoon. We've got a great show as usual ahead. First, though, I want to start off with the latest out of the East Coast. And, of course, that 21-year-old Massachusetts Air National Guardsman who is accused of leaking sensitive documents. We had many many minutes on that just last week on the program. We'll start with that, and then just on Friday, just a couple of days ago, the Defense Secretary, Lloyd Austin, was in Germany at Ramstein Air Base, and he was talking about the latest when it comes to the Russia-Ukraine war. And then, speaking of Russia, we'll wrap this first segment up with a new ad campaign. Hey, Russian men, if you're a real man, you'll join the military. We'll have that straight ahead. We couldn't do programs like this, and of course, this one in particular, without our presenting sponsor, Attorney John Boson at Boson Law. B-O-E-S-E-N Law, BosonLaw.com, fighting on behalf of veterans every single day. And right now, especially with that clock ticking down to a deadline this summer, helping those who served for a time at Camp Lejeune. Give them a call if that is you or someone you know, 303-999-9999. And, of course, bosonlaw.com. As we begin, the latest out of the documents from CBS News. We turn now to that national security leak of top-secret documents about the war in Ukraine. The Massachusetts Air National Guardsman accused of posting files to an online chat room used by gamers made a brief appearance in federal court today. CBS's Catherine Harridge reports the detention hearing was delayed to give the defense more time to prepare. Handcuffed as he entered the Boston court, 21-year-old Jack Texera, now charged under the Espionage Act, stared into space. Since the Air National Guardsman was arrested by heavily armed federal agents outside his mother's Massachusetts home, bipartisan outrage has built on Capitol Hill over the leaked Pentagon records posted online. I think it's stunning. Today, a private briefing by the nation's top intelligence official seemed to raise more questions. I certainly wasn't satisfied with any plans they have in place to prevent this from happening in the future. I think a lot of us wondered, you know, 
how a 21-year-old airman gets access to all of this information. He had a uh, top-secret uh, clearance. Traveling overseas, Defense Secretary Austin revealed Texera did have extraordinary access and computer privileges because of his military job. This young man was a systems administrator, so he was a computer uh, specialist that, uh, that worked in an intelligence unit. Now that Air National Guard Intelligence Wing's mission is suspended as government investigators probe the potential damage to sources and methods like human spies and wiretaps. The breadth of the information that's been leaked is problematic. Former senior counterintelligence official Bill Evanina told CBS News the classified records will undergo a painstaking review. They're going line by line through these documents as part of the damage assessment. Line by line. And we let the agency who provided that information, or multiple agencies, look at it with their experts to be able to say what was in there and where do we get it from. And late today, the leadership of the powerful Senate Intelligence Committee said the leak indicates that serious deficiencies in the government's insider threat program have not been addressed. That from just a few days ago, CBS News and Pentagon correspondent Catherine Herridge. You heard the defense secretary in that piece just this past Friday. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin hosting the Ukraine Contact Group in Germany. Ukraine has been fighting bravely to defend its people, its sovereignty and its freedom. And countries from around the world have condemned Russia's atrocities and aggression and stood up for an open world of rules and rights. And ladies and gentlemen, more than a year later, Ukraine is still standing strong. And our support has not wavered. And I'm proud of the progress that we have made together. In total, the members of this contact group have provided more than $55 billion in security assistance for Ukraine. That's a tenfold increase since we first met. Just in the past few months, we provided the equipment and training to support an additional nine armored brigades for, for Ukraine, and that has already strengthened Ukraine's position on the battlefield. A European consortium is donating Leopard tanks, and countries continue to coordinate through the contact group on providing ammunition and maintenance for those tanks. And so this contact group also provided key air defense systems to protect Ukraine's skies and citizens and critical infrastructure. That includes Patriot systems from the United States and Germany and the Netherlands, SAMP-T from Italy and France, and NASAMS from Canada and Norway. We've also improved training and sustainment and the power of our industrial bases. And throughout, we've demonstrated our unity and determination. Our common efforts have made a huge difference to Ukraine's defenders on the battlefield. And they underscore just how badly the Kremlin miscalculated. Putin thought that he could easily topple Kyiv's democratically elected government. He thought that the wider world would let him get away with it. He thought that our unity would splinter, but he was wrong on each and every count. And as we come together again at Ramstein, the world hears our voices loud and clear. The world sees what we've achieved together. The Ukrainian military stands tall with capability and courage. After more than a year of Russian aggression and deceit, this contact group is as united as ever and more global than ever. And our support for the forces of freedom in Ukraine holds strong and true. Now, I know that Many of you have been following the reports of unauthorized disclosure of sensitive and classified U.S. material. I take this issue very seriously. 
and we will continue to work closely and respectfully with our deeply valued allies and partners. As I've discussed this issue with our allies and partners, I've been struck by your solidarity and your commitment to reject efforts to divide us. And we will not let anything fracture our unity. U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin there at the Ukraine Contact Group at Ramstein Air Base. You can hear he did a little bit of cleanup, that from just this past Friday. And speaking of the Russian war against Ukraine, this past week, an unveiling of a new campaign. Hey, if you're a man in Russia of age and you're not in the military, why don't you step up? Be a man. This from CNN. That video came out just two days ago, so it's hard to assess at the moment its impact as a recruitment tool, but it's very clear that this is designed to recruit men directly into the war in Ukraine. The Ministry of Defense uses the tagline, which in Russian translates roughly as join your own and plays on the Russian acronym for special military operations. So there's no doubt that. Look, I think to be fair, a lot of armies do use recruitment videos that play on the ideas of confidence, of strength, of manhood. Uh, in some ways, but this also speaks to Russia's challenges that it's having in recruiting trained personnel for the battlefield. We saw with that recruitment drive back in the autumn that they recruited 300,000 untrained personnel. I think this is an entirely different kind uh, of recruitment that we're seeing now using the special military operation, the war in Ukraine, uh, as a recruitment drive in itself. We know they're trying to swell the ranks of their professional army by about 400,000 men, so clearly they are committing also these kind of PR resources uh, to that. Obviously, it's jarring looking at it from outside of Russia, knowing what we know about the kinds of casualties they're facing uh, on the battlefield. The latest leaked Pentagon document document suggesting uh, that about 43,000 Russians uh, have been killed uh, in combat. That's just an estimate. But I think inside Russia, it's worth noting that, A, uh, public service announcements are pretty common. And secondly, that it is a country with very defined gender roles. So I think that play on the idea of manliness may be more effective than it seems from the outside. That from CNN. Coming up in our next segment as we take our first time out, we'll go back to what happened one week ago today in downtown Denver, west of the state capitol, the unveiling of the monument for Major General Maurice Rose. And we'll go back just a few days and replay our interview on the regular program with the sculptor of this incredible monument, now in Colorado, George Lundin. We'll hear from him coming up. And then if you are a World War II history buff, you will love the second half of the program as we talk about the 11th Division, the 11th Airborne Division in the Pacific Theater. New World War II book is out, and we'll talk with its author, a United States Army veteran. That comes up next. Glad you're with us on this Sunday. This is the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com. Now, back to the American Veteran Show. Here's Stephan Tubbs. As always, we sure appreciate your time here on the American Veteran Show every single Sunday at noon here on 710KNUS. It was one week ago today that the Major General Maurice Rose Monument was unveiled through a big dedication ceremony uh, just west of the Colorado State Capitol at Lincoln Veterans Park. And we had a chance before that ceremony on our regular program to talk with one of our favorite guests in the last few years, to be quite honest with you. An amazing interview. I urge you to go back to the podcast for the original program. But here, an excerpt from George Lundin, the sculptor of the Major General Maurice Rose 
Monument. Well, Stephen, thank you very much. It's kind of a chilly day today in Tucson, Arizona. Got down to almost 74 degrees this morning. Thank you. See, you know what? I knew it. I knew I'd have a comedian in you. <laughs> well, oh, you, man. You have, to, you have to see the bright side of life when you're a starving artist. Stephen. Yeah. Listen, you are you are a gift from God. It's LundeenSculpture.com, L-U-N-D-E-E-N, Sculpture.com. Uh, how do you get involved in this? How does one start a bronze sculpture or sculpture career? I grew up in a small town in the middle of Nebraska. You know, you get to be the class artist. Next thing you know, you go to college and you take a lot of art classes. I was lucky enough to take a, a class where I started working with clay, and, and uh, we had a we built a nice little bronze foundry at that college back in Hastings, Nebraska. And went off from there to graduate school. From graduate school, I went off to uh, Italy. Had a nice grant to study in Italy for a year, and with all of those great accolades, I got a great job tending bar in a <laughs> local nightclub. <clears throat> like most fine arts majors, I was qualified to flip hammer. George Lundin is our guest. He's joining us from his home in Tucson. He'll be unveiling Colorado's newest monument, and it is in Veterans Park. What was it, George? You mentioned flipping burgers, and you go to Italy, and you know you, you've given a, a nod to your education and being raised in Nebraska, but. What was that one sculpture or closing of a deal, somebody coming to you and you accept or however that worked? What was the turning point for you to know, I'm going to make a living at this? Well, Stefan, I don't, you know, I don't know about your, your, uh, your career, but there were a lot of people involved in, in somebody's career. And yeah. I, I just feel very, very fortunate to have met the people I did at the right time. Uh, you have the right high school instructor that, um, uh, you know, eggs you on a little bit, uh, and the college instructors do you a lot of good. Um, just uh, just by chance, I walked into the foundry in Loveland, Colorado, 1975, and uh, I looked around and I thought, these are the best castings I've ever seen, and I've worked in foundries in Europe and in the United States, and these were absolutely the best castings I'd ever seen. So I asked the guy if I could have a job, and he said, no, I don't hire any darn sculptors. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he dealt with enough of them. And uh, the fellow that showed me, uh, that walked into that place with me, where it was an ex-Marine from Vietnam, and uh, Bob Zimmerman, the guy that owned the foundry, uh, was an ex-Marine from uh, from Korea. And it seems those two guys hit it off, and about three months later, I get a call from Marty, a kid named Marty Asplund, that was my old roommate at college. He called me back and said, George, you still want to move to Loveland, Colorado? I said, sure, but I said, Bob doesn't want to hire anybody, any darn sculptors. He didn't use the word darn, <clears throat> but in any case, uh, he said, well, he said, Mark, uh, he said, Bob's not hiring. He said, I am. He said, I'm the foundry manager. So, uh, Marty hired me and I came out about a month later and, uh, never looked back. Hmm. George, let me ask you, where can people, uh, see your works? I- I'm telling you, I've got to ask a-, a couple of questions about this. Absolutely incredible. The Eagle has landed this tribute to Apollo 11 astronauts that's that's on display at NASA. But where are where are your works and your team and the collaboration and all of that? Are you around the world? Well, not not everywhere. We're still looking for some street corners. You know, we're not done working yet. <laughs> Stephen. Sure. We're looking for empty street corners all the time. Uh, no, in Denver, in Denver, go out to the airport. You see, we did a big piece of uh, L. Ray Jefferson years ago. Sure. Uh, Jefferson Terminal, and we did one of Jack Swaggart that was uh, the first one went into the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. 
And we just uh, put a second sculpture in the Capitol building of Amelia Earhart uh, from uh, from Kansas. Mm. And then we, uh, oh gosh, just recently we put in the astronauts at the uh, Kennedy Space Center, the Apollo 11. We did Apollo 13 for the uh, uh, Space Center, Johnson Space Center down in Houston. And what, oh, we did Dick Butkus and Baby Crockett for the Alamo. We've We've had a busy 40 years. I, I love Always it. When we have the baseball player in front of Coors Field. That is where I probably first saw the touch of Lundine, right? Many people. 20th and Blake, that that right there, yeah. the, the statue right there outside of Coors Field. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we did that uh, all for the Denver Rotary Club years ago when they used to give out the... Uh, the Branch Rickey, right? The Branch Rickey Award, you bet. Yeah. Let me ask you just just uh, challenges, uh, successes, any stories that you can tell us behind the scenes of this wonderful new Colorado uh, monument going up for Major General Maurice Rose. Well, I, I come from a family. Of, my father was uh, in on the D-Day invasion with General Rose. He was he was not in the uh, tank divisions, but he was he was a glider pilot flying into St. Maria Gleese. And uh, we heard about that our whole lives. And oh. so when I got a call from these guys in Denver, uh, they said, would you be interested in doing a monument to this General Rose? I, all I had to do was read a little bit about him. And you find out this guy is one of the very true American heroes. I mean, absolute true. Almost, uh, he won the war almost as quickly as my father did. I cannot believe that connection. Your father in World War II you know, Major General Maurice Rose, the highest ranking officer killed in action in the European theater in World War II, uh, awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, Distinguished Service Medal, Purple Heart with an Oak Leaf Cluster, six others throughout his lifetime of service. Well, when you study General Rose, this guy would come out of his tent. He looked like a, he looked like he was coming out of Hollywood. He's a just a big, tall, good looking guy. And he always dressed in his uh, jodhpurs. He had his he had his cavalry boots on with the three three buckles on the sides. He always had his tanker jacket on. Uh, I had to go all the way to Germany on eBay to find a set of tanker goggles. No and, kidding. Uh, we we found you know of course the, the helmet is everywhere, but we found an old K bar knife, a, a forty five uh, forty five uh, holster, and a forty five, and and it, it was it was wonderful getting all that stuff together. It really was. I found the boots. Uh, I had to call up Paramount because I saw them on a movie called Fury. That's the only other place I ever saw those three buckle boots. And so I called up Paramount, got the uh, props guy, and he said, "Oh yeah, I've got a, uh, a fellow down in San Diego that makes those boots." No kidding. Guy had a pair of, pair of thirteens made, and they fit me just perfect. So That's I incredible. For about a, I wore them around town for about a month to break them in, so they looked like they'd been uh, ridden for a while. And, and then that's what you use for this this statue, for this sculpture. Oh yeah, oh yeah, unreal. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. So we we try to get all you know. You can't make a mistake with veterans. You know, if if you don't have the shoes tied straight, uh, you know, you got to have the laces right. And may that be that way for from here to eternity. <laughs> well, I I hope so. I hope so. I, like I told you, my father was a glider pilot, and, and when he jumped in his car, he made sure the air was in the tires. And I remember when he met L. Ray Jeppesen a long time ago. They were both old pilots, and 
boy, they have some great stories, but they kept their cars clean and they kept their shoes tight. Yeah. Is So is this total, as we wrap up with you, George, is it 18 feet total, 10 for the base and 8 for the sculpture? What are the What are we looking at? No, it's not that big. It's about 3 feet on the base and uh, another 10 feet on the sculpture, about 13 feet. I can't wait to see this Maurice Rose statue. Thank you very much, Stephen. Thank you. Pleasure. Again, an amazing American, George Lundin. I could have talked with him for a week. You've seen his work uh, at NASA, if you've been down there at the Visitor Center. You've seen his work in the United States Capitol. You've seen his work at 20th and Blake with that baseball player statue outside of Coors Field here in Denver. And you have seen his Jack Swigert, the astronaut, of course, Coloradan. You've seen him... Uh, the statue at Denver International Airport. So thank you to George Lundeen, and congratulations to everyone connected with the monument in honor of Major General Maurice Rose. We'll wrap up the second half of the program with a terrific guest. His name is James Fenelani, United States Army veteran, and his new book, Angels Against the Sun, talking about the 11th Airborne Division in the Pacific Theater. Terrific interview ahead. This is the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com. Welcome back to the American Veteran Show. We continue now with Stefan Tubbs. We continue this weekend's American Veteran Show, and thank you so much, as always, for making us a Sunday habit. Be sure to visit AmericanVeteranShow.com. As we take a look at the second half of this program, uh, we have a great guest, United States veteran, also an author of the new book, Angels Against the Sun. James Fenelon is his name. And as mentioned, he served. And look, I'm a lowly civilian. I honor all of you who have raised your right hand and have served our great country. Some say 1%. I think I have it on pretty good authority that less than one half of 1% of our nation's population serves. So please welcome James Fenelon on. James, welcome. If you could, tell us a little bit about your service, and then we'll certainly get into this book uh, in one of my favorite genres of, of film or books, and that would be World War II. So thank you. Sure. Yeah. So I, I enlisted in 1987 and served for a little over a decade. Most of that time was spent on jump status, and I had the privilege of going to the Army Airborne School and then later um, Jump Master and Pathfinder, which is really where I kind of developed my my interest in, in military history and in particular airborne operations in World War II. Do you think that, especially, and I think we're of the same age, you know, I graduated from high school in 1987, so we're right around that same age. And, and I'm just wondering, especially back in the mid to late 80s, a lot of uh, men and women who were enlisting and were serving, and it's uh, it's an interesting time because it was obviously a few years before the first Gulf War. But I wonder how many people like of our age or you back then really gave World War II a second thought, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's interesting. I think part of what helped me along that path was that I had a high school teacher who was fond of bringing in guest speakers. And at that point in time, you know, it was a lot easier to, to put your hands on a World War II veteran than it is now. And so I think that was the other component that kind of kickstarted my interest was just, you know, that teacher really did a good job of making history live, so to speak, by bringing in people who had actually participated in some of the events that we were talking about in class. Yeah, we're going to get into your book again, Angels Against the Sun, author James Fenelon, and uh, of course, a United States Army veteran, as we're talking about, uh, joins us here on the program. Uh, why the military for you? Uh, was it in your family? How how did you get in? 
Um, you know, my uncle had served during Vietnam and and I certainly responded to that. He always, you know, did a great job of kind of sharing his experiences, not all of which were great, but, you know, it was enough of that that intrigued me. And then, you know, honestly, if I had, you know, probably saw a lot of John Wayne movies and um, <laughs> that spurred things along as well. Yeah. Well, let's get into uh, this is not your first book, your first four hours of fury, the untold story of World War II's largest airborne invasion and the final push into Nazi Germany. But this one, Angels Against the Sun, give us a, an overall summary and then we'll get into a lot of detail. Yeah, so the two are almost kind of companion pieces. I, I set out with the mission of trying to tell or, or telling the story, frankly, of little known airborne operations from World War II and where the first one takes place in Europe. The second, Angels Against the Sun, as you mentioned, takes place in the Pacific Theater and covers the campaigns of the 11th Airborne Division, who were nicknamed the Angels. When you start doing this research, I mean, you're going from one theater of war in World War II to the other. I know it is very blatant and obvious, but, I mean, you're talking, man, what different war theaters, right? I mean, so much of what we know of our history. Band of Brothers, for example, a lot of people know about and have seen the miniseries. Maybe they've read the books. But you see that in Europe and then the, you know, just the Pacific battles and against the Japanese Empire. Just, just what a difference, 180 degrees. Absolutely. And before I started doing the research, you know, I kind of fell in that same category. I was much more familiar with what had happened in Europe and certainly, you know, a huge fan of the Band of Brothers series as well. And that had kind of been my my focus for a long time. And so it was really, you know, switching gears and heading into the Pacific was a little bit intimidating. Yeah, most certainly. Author James Fanelon, United States Army veteran, joins us. We'll have him for one more segment as we wrap up this week's edition of the American Veteran Show. Again, his book that is out right now by our sister company under the Salem Media Group umbrella put out by Regnery Publishing and our friends at Regnery History. The book Angels Against the Sun, uh, a World War II saga of grunts, grit and brotherhood. So Give me one anecdote, one story, or about a group of of these folks, however you want to break it down. Let me, through this radio interview, not only for my purposes, but our our friends listening, give us a story, somebody that we would grasp onto in your book. Yeah, so my I immediately jumped to the story of a guy named Mills Lowe, who was a sergeant in charge of a machine gun section. Mills had, uh, he was a product of the the Great Depression. So he had grown up on a peanut farm and, you know, without without indoor plumbing. And so when he got into the army, it, he basically viewed it as, as, as a vacation almost. You know, he got to sleep in late <laughs> and uh, relatively speaking and had three square meals a day, right? And so he kind of took to uh, the army as a fish out of water. He really responded to the work ethic that he had developed over the years on on the farm that served him well. He rose through the ranks, being promoted up to sergeant, and he really uh, had his was a fascinating character. One of one of his um, exploits, I guess, is the best way to put it. And what ended up getting him a battlefield commission was there was a there was a nighttime attack where the Japanese were sending waves of bonsai attacks against their position. The machine gun section was set up in front of the perimeter there. They had probably four machine guns online. Um, About the time of the fourth wave attack coming at them, they were running low on ammunition. And so Mills Lowe actually grabbed some of his guys, and then they charged into the Japanese lines, grabbed a couple of Japanese machine guns, ammunition, brought them back to the American lines, set them up, 
and then proceeded to continue to engage the Japanese as they were coming at him. Wow. So uh, really a hardcore um, sergeant who, who led his men through those kinds of battles, just unrelenting human wave attacks. You can listen or you can, well, I'm sure there's going to be some way you can listen, but you can listen to this interview, but you can read about that sergeant in Angels Against the Sun. Its author, James Fenelon, joins us here on the American Veteran Show. I can't imagine how much research and the interview processes and maybe going back to, you know, uh, unfortunately, we're losing so many of our World War II and greatest generation every single day. How did how was that for you to put this book together? Yeah, it was a combination of spending a lot of time in the archives, both up in up in Washington, D.C., um, going to the Army has several repositories where they maintain archives, which are always helpful and fascinating to get into because you never know what you're going to find there. And I was really fortunate to earn the trust of several veterans' families who bestowed, mm. you know, shared, I should say, their families' diaries and, and letters and, in several cases, um, personal um, manuscripts that their their relative had written about his experience during the war. And that really allowed me to bring in, you know, elements of, of their human experience into this story. And so important. And I know this book just came out this past week, but so important that, you know, people like you and me and our friends listening, you know, that we continue these stories because if, if families, to your point, if they don't keep the letters and diaries and maybe some old photos and, and, you know, recollections of, of talking with their loved one that, you know, they, these, this greatest generation, as you know, they changed the world. And boy, it's, it's, it's our duty. And I'm just so glad that there are people like you writing books about this. I want to get into our next segment talking about the importance of the Philippines. But we're talking about boots on the ground in Japan. Overall, whether it's this book, your previous one, or your life experience and you as a, as a United States Army veteran, I'll tell you, countless Countless veterans have told me, oh, World War II veterans, especially in the Pacific theater, even in Europe, though, they thought, well, VE Day may be one thing, but we know we're going to invade Japan. Have you heard that probably throughout your life? Absolutely. And these guys, you know, in the 11th Airborne Division, they were, you know, in in the mid of 1945, fully expecting to be in the vanguard of the invasion of Japan. Isn't isn't it amazing, James, to think of the potential and thank god it didn't happen and i know we're not going to get into a debate and we haven't really on this program because though i did not like the bombs being dropped on hiroshima and nagasaki i mean you think about the potential those were horrific events and maybe we never see that again in human history however you think about the potential i mean the casualty numbers you know are in the millions yeah it's interesting isn't it when when atomic bombs appear to be your best option that gives you an idea of the decisions they had to make. Well said. We're going to wrap up this uh, third segment of the American Veteran Show. Again, our guest, uh, the author of Angels Against the Sun, a United States Army veteran. He was in for a decade, author James Fenelon. The book out by Regnery History and our sister company under the Salem Media Group umbrella, uh, Regnery History and Regnery Publishing. When we come back, we're going to get into why why did the United States uh, Army and why did the country feel that the Philippines were so important. And if you remember, MacArthur came back. Uh, remember all of that. We'll get into it in our final segment this week on the American Veteran Show. Stefan Tubbs with you. Please be sure to visit AmericanVeteranShow.com. We wrap up the program coming up next.
This is the American Veteran Show, online at AmericanVeteranShow.com. Here's Stephan Tubbs. Final segment of the American Veteran Show this Sunday. Uh, greatly appreciate our guest, author James Fenelon, his latest book out by Regnery History, Angels Against the Sun. Mr. Fenelon served in the United States Army for more than a decade, getting in in, uh, I believe, if memory serves, 1987. So you talk about, and we, we talked last segment about, you know, the potential of a, of a Japanese invasion occupying Japan, and, and the bombs were, of course, horrific. But you think of what potentially may have been down the road. But let's go back up and and talk about the importance of the Philippines. I ask you a simple question. Why were the Philippines so important in the Pacific theater in World War II? Yeah, you hinted at it a little bit there. It was was certainly a decision that MacArthur, you know, advocated significantly. I mean, it was it was kind of his his manifest destiny, if you will, to return to the Philippines. He had made that promise, that famous promise, I shall return in 1942 when he was evacuated from Corregidor. And so, you know, he had very strong ties to the island a lot. You know, he lived in Manila for many years before the war. And also the Philippines allowed, you know, occupying those islands allowed the Americans to have a significant presence of airfields in the area, which, of course, allowed them to radiate outward from an air control, you know, air support perspective, which allowed them to then control many of the sea lanes, in addition to the Navy obviously having a presence where the Japanese were bringing supplies to and from uh, the main island, right? So being an island nation, they relied on um, fuel and rubber and other materials of war that they needed to be imported and brought from other islands. And occupying the Philippines would allow the allies to cut off a number of those um, supply routes. The book Angels Against the Sun, a World War II saga of grunts, grit, and brotherhood. Uh, you focus specifically on the 11th Airborne Division. I know maybe you had hinted on it in our last segment, but if you would, just if, if somebody's just joining us, talk about the 11th. Yeah, so the 11th was uh, an Airborne Division very similar to, you know, when you and I were talking about the Band of Brothers. And so it was it was almost a mere, you know, copy of the 101st Airborne Division, but these guys were sent to the Pacific. They had trained in many of the same places. So, you know, maybe you're familiar with Mount Curahy. Mm. These guys had run up Mount Curahy as well. And so they were sent to the Pacific. And that's really where their unique capability of airborne warfare was both a blessing and a curse to them. Because MacArthur initially was very hesitant to commit them into the Philippine campaign because they were about half the size of a regular infantry division. And from MacArthur's perspective, that meant that they were going to be harder to supply and thus keep their the momentum sustained as they were moving across the island up into the up into the central mountains. I want to stick with the Philippines for a moment. I've never been, but I imagine at least in in you know some of this island chain. I mean, we're talking about we're talking about jungles, the heat, the humidity, etc. I mean, I know you probably get into in the book just that jungle warfare. Talk about that. Yeah, it, it, it's almost like the jungle was its own character in the book, frankly, because right. you can't underestimate how difficult it is to fight in those conditions. When they landed in the Philippines, it rained for the first 30 days of their campaign. And so all the roads on the island were dirt. So they're just turned into mud. All the airfields had been turned into a quagmire. You know, after 30 days in the rain, uniforms are rotting off. Their boots are falling apart. You know, every foxhole you dig is is basically four inches of mud in the bottom of it. And so, you know, and that's all before they even engaged with the Japanese. Yeah, that's such a great point. I mean, it is, like you say, almost a character, but it was almost an enemy unto itself, wasn't it? 
That's right. The I mean, conditions. It, you know, veteran account after veteran account mentions how they felt like the island was trying to kill them itself. Again, our author uh, and guest, uh, James Fenelon, uh, he, his book, uh, Angels Against the Sun, just came out this past week. I urge you to pick it up. Put out by Regnery History, Angels Against the Sun, a World War II saga of grunts, grit, and brotherhood. If you weren't with us in our last segment, he's, uh, James was talking about how you know so much was uh, archival history, doing a lot of research, obviously, but then the one-on-one that I'm so glad that you got, right, with, with family members of these veterans, perhaps not with us anymore, that had shared their stories, had documented it, whether it's a diary or photos or or what have you. When you take a gigantic step back, James, are you amazed that so many of the 11th, they were able to come out, see the U.S. be victorious? Because, I mean, again, you've got you've got the elements against you and you certainly have the Japanese Empire. Yeah, exactly. It was interesting. I think, you know, it's 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 not it's it's ironic, but. In some ways, it was that environment. So over over 2,000 of the division's troops went down with disease and fever. Wow. You know, and so you can almost think at one point during their campaign, um, around the time they were um, in Manila, they were almost suffering as many casualties from disease as they were from combat. And in some ways, you know, you can imagine if you're taken down by malaria or you know, another type of fever that in some ways that saves your life because you're then taken off the front lines and evacuated. Oh. The the amount of casualties in the Pacific, I, I just think that, and, and it's certainly been one of our themes, you know, over the years of doing this program. And, you know, I, I don't think a lot of people, and it's it's not a shame on them, it's just I think a lot of it is, uh, stories passed along, what we are taught in schools, and then if people choose to watch documentaries, see films, and maybe most importantly because of the detail provided, you know, read books like yours. But you you look, for example, I look at Okinawa and and how many people, you know, kind of just think, well, that was just a mop-up operation at the end of World War II in 1945. I mean, my God, I've, I, I've done my own research that, I mean, Okinawa was, you know, per square foot, some of the bloodiest battles of the entire war, and I'm talking European and Pacific theater, and it's just great that you were able to you know, keep alive the Pacific theater in, in this book because I, I just don't know if we're doing a good enough job as society to make sure that the younger generations, people younger than you and me, they understand fully the sacrifice and, and truly the hardships that would obviously come with war, but I just don't know if we realize that today. I agree. And I think you bring up a great point about Okinawa. You know, from a Japanese perspective, there was no puttering out of the war, so to speak. You know, they viewed every battle as the opportunity for the definitive battle. And, you know, their idea, once once it became fairly clear that they weren't going to win the war, their goal was then to have such a decisive victory that at least they could come to the negotiation table at some kind of parity. And so every battle for them was a do or die situation, right? It became just a massive, br- brutal war of attrition. You know, as we wrap up, this is this is not a test of your humility, okay? I promise. Author James Fenelon, his book, Against uh, Angels Against the Sun. You know, you are a graduate of uh, the Army's Airborne Jumpmaster and Pathfinder schools, and you're writing about the 11th Airborne Division that I think you've compared to, you know, what, what the 101st did in, in Europe. But have you thought... If you were transported back, could you have done what they did? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, You know, I'll tell you this. One of the things, and again, this is why I included the word brotherhood in the subtitle. You know, Mm. it was a group of guys that were extremely tight, 
They had been trained extremely well together. And I'll echo one of the thoughts from one of the letters that a guy wrote home in 1945 was that if he had to do this, he couldn't imagine doing it without the guys around him, without those guys specifically in that unit. So I think it's one of those things. And one of the themes that I took away from talking to these veterans was this idea that you can't choose your circumstances. You can't choose what happens to you, but you can choose how you react to them. And so I think if I had those guys with me, I would have been okay. Brother, that is an awesome answer. I mean, it all depends, right, on who's to your left, who's to your right, who's forward, and and who's got your six. You can hear these firsthand or read about these firsthand accounts. Uh, you can learn more about the 11th Airborne Division. Uh, I can't wait to read this book. Angels Against the Sun, a World War II saga of grunts, grit, and brotherhood. And I say to you, brother, friend of the program now, so your next one or whatever you want to do, you're more than welcome to come back. I salute your service and thank you for your sacrifice. And really, at this stage in our lives, right, I thank you so much for you know not forgetting. You're not letting people look. People cannot buy the book, or they, they can buy the book, but you've put it in writing. And, and may we always remember that greatest generation, and in this case, the 11th Airborne. That's that's the mission. Thanks, Stefan. I appreciate the opportunity, and this has been great. Appreciate your time. That wraps up this week's edition of the American Veteran Show. Thanks again to author James Fenelon, United States Army veteran, and the book, Angels Against the Sun. For producer Michael Arpaio, I'm Stefan Tubbs. Have a great week ahead, and remember our troops. The American Veterans Show is a copyrighted production of Mountain Time Media Group, LLC. All rights reserved. For more information, visit AmericanVeteranShow.com. And join us next week for another edition of The American Veteran Show. The United States Border Patrol has exciting and rewarding career opportunities with the nation's largest law enforcement organization. Border Patrol agents enjoy great pay, outstanding federal benefits, and up to $20,000 in recruitment incentives. If you are looking for a way to serve something greater than yourself, consider the United States Border Patrol. Learn more online at cbp.gov careers slash USBP. That's cbp.gov slash careers slash USBP.